Bada bing. I was a half second early there. It's, it's really actually tough to time it perfectly because it takes about three seconds when you click live to go live. And then it's just a question of whether or not I get within the half second frame. Good evening, people. Let's wait for the standard Fs to invade the chat so that I know that we're rolling and we're... I am not late, Ray K. I am meticulously, obsessively punctual. F, 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 F looking good. Booyah, I skipped over. What is this? Barnes, is that the same as your... Hold on, get out of here. Okay. How's everybody, how's everybody doing? Uh, as everyone can see, I got a haircut. I love this haircut. I went with the trimming of the beard. The only problem is, and this is why I don't trim the fur around Winston's eyes. Once you do it, once you manicure your face, you have to start maintaining that manicure. And I, I can't be bothered to do that. So once this grows out, I've learned my lesson. I'm not manicuring the beard ever again. It's going to grow savage and wild. But my goodness, Damps Company in Montreal gives the best skin fade on earth. Um, okay, what's a, how do I, oh, okay, I got private chat on StreamYard. I just noticed that. All right, so let me get back to regular chat so I can see the comments. Um, it's going to be an interesting stream tonight. Jordan Schachtel, and I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a guess as to the, or, well, not the origin. I, I suspect there's a history to that last name. And if I can guess it right without having done any research, I'm going to pat myself on the back. Jordan Schachtel is a national security correspondent, investigative journalist. And uh, I mean, I, I, I've been following him. Not for, I have not been following him, following him for very long on Twitter, but I've been seeing his stuff for quite a while. Um, and I read some interesting articles today. So we're going to have a good discussion because it's going to touch on some issues that have been in the news recently, but also a bit of what he does, how he does it and uh, what's unique about that. So let's see, standard uh, disclaimers, no legal advice, super chats, 30% goes to YouTube. If you don't like that, uh, I understand that. You can support Robert Barnes and I on Locals, vivabarneslaw.locals.com. For everyone on Locals, I said I was gonna do a live stream today and I'm going to, I guess I'm just gonna have to do it after this live stream, exclusive to Locals. Uh, super chats, if I miss them and you're gonna be upset about it, don't give the super chat. I don't like people feeling miffed. It's like a Canadian kid in play. I don't know what that is referencing, but thank you for the chat. And you got a face. You got a fade. Really? It is a beautiful fade. Brings out the gray hairs, but uh, what can you do? Now, Jordan and Robert are in the house. There were some under-the-table or over-the-table wagers as to the color of Robert's tie. So place your bets while I say hello to this super chat. The only thing that matters is that if the wife likes it. She thinks the beard is not short enough but she appreciates the thought and the effort. Okay, we shall bring in. What, does your wife like that? You got a fade instead. I don't know what that means. Okay, we're bringing in Jordan. We're bringing in Robert. Gentlemen, how you doing? Good, good. Doing great, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. This is gonna be interesting because oftentimes it's not hard to find a slew of information on a guest and to go watch interviews, read posts. I've been reading some of your articles, but there's a um, what we would refer to as a dearth of information about you on the internet. I suspect we're going to get to why that is. But elevator pitch for everybody who's watching who may not know who you are. Who are you? What do you do before we get into the origins coming back to the present? Yeah, so I'm an independent journalist 
Um, and I've worked basically all over right of center media. And most people are familiar with my work pre-2020 from the foreign policy national security space. Most people in recent days are familiar with my work regarding the COVID mania stuff. Um, but yeah, I've been a journalist for like seven, eight years now since um, leaving grad school. So it's been an interesting time. I wear a lot of other hats. I do some strategic communications, PR work, and do some ghostwriting, trying to stop doing that because it's just, I, I wouldn't recommend it for anyone. <laughs> it's such a pain, but yeah, um, you know, totally um, running my own show right now. And I, I really enjoy being in that space and I highly recommend anyone that can get out of the cube life, just, just get out now. If I may ask, how old are you? You look rather young. Oh, thank you. I'm 31. You are rather young. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Ro Robert knows the MO. When we do this, we have a guest on. In as much as it's relevant to help explain how someone became who they are, my guess as to your last name, someone once upon a time had a spelling mistake on the L and it should have been an R and it stuck. Is that right or is that wrong? Um, I don't think so. Uh, it, it's of a like, German uh, Jewish origin. Um, so, you know, th there's a difference between like German last names and, and German Jewish last names. You have a very uniquely different type of history. My ancestors, uh, came from Eastern Europe, um, you know, eventually made all their, made their way all the way to the United States. Uh, yeah, but I don't, I don't think that it's, it's, it's a misspelling, uh, perhaps like an Ellis Island type incident, but, but I know there's other Schachtels out there that, that pronounce it that way. And I know that there's like a German and Austrian and Hungarian, um, way to translate that. All right. No, I, I, I've only grown up knowing Schachters. So I, I thought for a second, mm -hmm. maybe it was one of those mistakes at, at the, at the crossing. Um, where are you from? Yeah. So I was uh, born and raised in New York city, metropolitan area. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time in DC now I'm in Florida. So my, uh, my New Jersey accent has, has faded significantly. I, I don't, you know, pronounce things that, that embarrassing, in an embarrassing manner anymore. I'm not nearly as bad as like someone from Long Island with their ridiculous accent too. But uh, yeah, born and raised in New York City Metro, right across um, from New York City, basically. When did your uh, ancestors uh, first come to the States? So yeah, it, it's, it's fascinating to hear you know, family stories of, of early immigration to the United States. My ancestors, uh, so this would be like my great, great grandparents came to the US in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And um, you know, from Russia, Ukraine, Poland, um, all kind of like a similar area back then. And they spent years making the journey on foot from Eastern Europe to Western Europe, uh, you know, working for years and just walking basically to get to, on a ship to get to the United States. They came to the U.S. speaking Yiddish. Uh, you could see it on their on their documentation didn't speak a word of English. And, and it's, it's incredible that the United States used to be a place at least where it was just like, there wasn't even like a political ideology behind just getting here. You just got here because you wanted to get away from tyrannical governments and just have a shot at, at doing what you want to do with your life. And, you know, they came here with nothing. And I think a lot of people share that, share that story of, you know, immigration around that time. It was just a bunch of people from other countries that just wanted a chance to get, you know, the, the boot of government off of, of their backs. Uh, Robert, by the way, before we go, bring your mic a little closer. Apparently your volume might be a little lower than, uh, than others or than, than ours. Um, 
so Eastern Europe, uh, you're, you're multiple generations. It's not your parents were not first generation, oh, yeah. your grandparents were not. So you've been in America for a while. Yeah, several, several generations in the United States. But, you know, most of my family stuck relatively in the New York City metro area. I guess once you're like born and raised there, you don't traditionally leave there um, for whatever reason. There, you know, you have so much access to, to New York City, to Philly um, and a bunch of other cities. And um, yeah, for whatever reason, New Jerseyans just kind of tend to stay there. And uh, I think it's the same for like California people. So I'm sure people can relate. Midwesterners tend to like stay in the same area for the most part. Now, did you have a lot of siblings? What did your parents do? Yeah, so my, my parents both worked in uh, you know finance, insurance. Uh, my, my, I have an older brother, he's a lawyer. Younger sister works in uh, TV production. And uh, I have an extended family because um, you know divorced parents, remarried parents, stepbrothers, Half sisters. It's a it's, it's a big family. I think it's a very American thing these days to have uh, you know all kinds of uh, have a lot of cousins. Have you know a great great supporting network uh, growing up. Uh, nothing but good things to say about them. And, yeah, and did you go to public schools or private schools uh, in like elementary, high school, etc.? Yeah. So I was a I was raised in the public school system and. Um, looking, you know, it takes a while, I think, to look back on it and realize the shortcomings of the U.S. public school system, especially because I, I think I, I just learn a little differently. And the, the public school system does not maximize. It's a very rigid uh, formula that they teach. And, um, you know, I, I wish that you know, my future children at least had the opportunity to be educated in the best way possible. And I don't think that it, it's really um, unless you're like in a surprisingly good. My just my school district was fine, but you know when you look back on it, you just kind of get like propagandized into stupid stuff, and uh, it, it's a lot of the hours that you spend are are not particularly useful, in, in at least my opinion. And um, especially looking back on the public school system nowadays, how they kind of glorify certain presidents and uh, FDR, especially looking back on how they propagandize about the New Deal and all this stuff. And it gets in people's heads. And next thing you know, it's just like these these status quo things are, are just total lies. And yeah, I've, I've become over, I, I guess, like the COVID stuff to really open my eyes to a lot of things. And you kind of like rehash the things that you were taught growing up. And yeah, I was raised in the public school system, made a lot of good friends there, uh, had, had good times. But I don't think of it as an as an optimal system whatsoever. Once you, I say Robert has taken me out of the matrix, or at the very least, the circumstances of the last two years has taken me out of the matrix. Once you're out and you see it, you can never go back to seeing it the same way again. And once you understand the truth of things that have actually occurred, you can never go back to even uh, truly believing what you thought was absolute truth before then. And, and we'll get into the COVID stuff because I know you've been huge on it, uh, among other things. But this might help us explain something that occurs later on in your life, politically speaking, your parents, your upbringing, were you, I mean, I, I, you're from New York, so I operate on the stereotype that your democratic parents, democratic upbringing, is that fairly accurate? No, we were like Rockefeller Republicans, like total rhinos, you know, so <laughs> I guess that's the best way to, to explain it. But, um, you know, to, to my family's great credit, they've become more based over the years significantly, uh, living through the Bush years and, uh, you know, having to vote for John McCain as an option, having to vote for Mitt Romney. I think a lot of even Republicans in the Northeast are so sick of these awful options that they've been presented um, and that they were big fans of Donald Trump. So, um, yeah, so we grew up in kind of like a 
moderate Republican family, surprisingly. And as, as Jews, it's even more rare to be Republicans. There, there's very few of us in the Northeast. What uh, initiated or instigated or inspired your original interest in national security? Yes. Yeah, so, again, growing up across from New York City, um, when uh, you know, I grew up maybe like 20 miles outside. So in my, my town, New Jersey, basically, the, um, the economy was uh, you know, financed by a bunch of people who worked in Manhattan. And when 9-11 happened, it really shook up our world. There was, um, I think I was like probably. 11, you, were 11, you were 11 years old when it happened. Yes, yeah, so I was 12, I think. And, um, you know, there, there were a lot of tragedies in my school because like almost everyone was commuting to New York City, either in the train, by car. Um, uh, the, the kid that I was, um, this girl I was carpooling with, her father tragically died in the, in the World Trade Center. And it really shook up our worlds entirely. And that's what kind of got me um, on this path, especially to like the foreign policy, national security space. It really, uh, you know, I didn't really have any, you know, I was just a kid, but I didn't really have any like ambitions. And it kind of like got me really interested about how the world works. Um, you know, what what was the case with all these jihadis? What were they doing overseas? Um, yeah, so I, I um, in undergrad I, and, and in, for my master's, I studied international relations. And in addition to, I was actually planning on becoming a, an FDNY firefighter. So um, in undergraduate school, I went to um, the County Fire Academy in Jersey and got my firefighter certification, became a firefighter. Um, I was going to do, you know, the FDNY was actually my original goal. And through a lot of different things that happened in my life, I, I ended up getting into, you know, the media journalism space, but it was originally, you know, like heavily focused on like trying to like serve my country um, in a certain way or my community. So, you know, when I went to grad school, I wanted to become a fed basically. <laughs> and you, thank God I dodged that bullet because dealing with like, you know, imagine being um, in the FBI or CIA nowadays. No, well, so, I just, yeah. I consider myself video, lucky not being there. Video on my <laughs> yesterday, the, the Gretchen Whitmer plot, which is now mm -hmm. looking more like it was an FBI plot to abduct yeah. Gretchen Whitmer. Um, but now, so you're, you're actually just to touch on this a little more, you're 11, 12 years old when 9 11 happens. Do you remember everything about that? You remember where you were that entire day? Did it, I mean, look, it was traumatizing for people who were not in New York. How traumatizing was it for you? And, and, and were, you know, what happened that day? And then what, how did you process that? over the long term yeah it was just one of those things where you're you know you're you're almost a teenage kid and something just like totally shakes up your world and next thing you know your your friends parents aren't some of them aren't around anymore and th thank god nothing happened to my immediate family um I, I did have some relatives that that had escaped but it was such an impactful event for those of us because we were living at, at the time i'm sure you guys remember we were living in an america where we were the you know the world's hyperpower there was the the chinese threat was not really a thing back then it was just you know the u.s was just this this dominant force we just uh you know crushed iraq and, and the gulf war a, a decade earlier and like we were just this unstoppable force and and we didn't really think about americans weren't really thinking about what was going on overseas and and this just like totally shocked our worlds and we thought that this would that we would be prepared that there would be some kind of like you know missile defense system that would prevent this thing from happening and it just exposed so many vulnerabilities and um as i 
you know, my, my political ideology and, you know, the way I look at foreign affairs has changed dramatically over the years and, you know, about the stuff that happened in Afghanistan and Iraq. But that was really, I think, a life-changing moment for a lot of us that grew up in the New York City metro, that it was just so jarring and impactful. And, like, your bubble of security just felt shattered at the time. Now, in terms of being a fireman, what do you have to go through to learn how to be a fireman? So New Jersey, you have to do, um, I think it's like 180 hours. Um, you do all kinds of like uh, EMT stuff. You learn how to, uh, you know, the best way to, to find someone in a, in, a, in, a, in a room full of smoke. You learn how to carry out people. You learn how to put out a fire. Uh, you learn about biological and uh, chemical issues and stuff like that. Uh, in New Jersey, they have you trained pretty well. And I think the certification works almost anywhere in, in the United States. So um, it, New Jersey is also very reliant on volunteer firemen. So most of the, the, the firefighters in the state are actually volunteers. And they, uh, you know, they, they do considerable work for their communities. And, and it was actually a good way for me to kind of uh, mature to being around a lot of interesting people that um, kind of assisted in your maturity uh, you know i would if anyone is like thinking of if you have like spare time and, and you want to help out your community becoming like an emt or a firefighter is such an awesome way to, to to give back a little bit um so you obviously you didn't stick with that or you didn't do that in the long run yeah. what did you go on to study and how did you get into journalism yeah so in in grad school i was just kind of like um I, I was kind of on the fence about like, okay, do I really want to do this like federal hierarchy thing? And at the time, um, well, it was a couple of years after Andrew Breitbart just died and I had become much more interested in, I don't want to say politics, but just like commentating and journalism and like a lot of, you know, I was really inspired by like Mark Levin, Rush Limbaugh, like all these powerful people that, um, had really helped me in undergrad uh, dealing with like my Marxist professors and stuff like that. And I was like, this is pretty awesome. And I think I have some things co to contribute in this like national security space. So maybe I should just like write about it and see how it goes. And, you know, I, I moved to Washington DC for grad school and uh, my first job was at, was at Breitbart. And uh, to, to get like, I was basically just like emailing Steve Bannon consistently, like every single day, just harassing him, be like, all right, I'm gonna write for free for you. And then you're gonna offer me a job. Like I didn't even have a car. I was biking from, uh, for people who live in DC, I was biking from the Adams Morgan neighborhood to Capitol Hill, which is like several miles through traffic and just like basically like knocked on his door. <laughs> and uh, he doesn't live there anymore, I don't think. But uh, yeah, it was, um, it was quite the experience. I really just wanted to work um, for Andrew Breitbart's institution. And that was my kind of first job in the space. And I'm you know, so, so grateful that they were, um, you know, they were willing to give me that opportunity um, to make that first step into, you know, the, the journalism and, and writing space. Now, what was it like working for Steve Bannon? Cause he has a bit of a mixed reputation as an employer. Yeah, he was, um, he was very supportive. Uh, he, he's tough, but he, he was very support. He was very supportive of my work. I, I have no, 
right is now. Is he as yeah. crazy as people say he is? Like, I mean, crazy in a good way sometimes, crazy in a different way sometimes. Crazy in a good way, we call that eccentric. Yeah. <laughs> yes, eccentric. It's like the the from the movie uh, Speed. Uh, when you're poor, mm -hmm. you're crazy. When you're rich, you're just eccentric. Uh, the how? What was that? I mean, was it like it, people describe it? I guess as a really intense experience. How much of those descriptions are accurate? How many of them are exaggerated? It's pretty accurate. Yeah. yeah. I don't like spilling the tea. I'm not one of those uh, people that's ever going to write a tell all book. So private conversations are private conversations. But, uh, you know, we disagreed on things and he still let me publish stuff. So got to give him credit. Um, he's dealing with all kinds of shit right now, but got to give him credit where, where credit is due. And, you know, he provided the first opportunity um, to me and I will forever grateful for that. Um, he took a chance on me when I was just some like idiot grad school student with 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 basically zero credentials and just had like a, pa a real passion to want to contribute to this movement that Andrew Breitbart started. And um, yeah, that's how I got started. The um, it was actually Gary Vaynerchuk for anybody who doesn't know who Gary Vaynerchuk is. Gary V gives all sorts of life advice. One of the pieces of advice he gave, which I always thought was meaningful, yeah. is when you're young, you know, work for free or just go work somewhere where you want to learn what you're doing, even if it means working for free uh, to get the experience because you have the rest of your life to make money. And it sort of sounds like that's kind of what you did is you, you pinpointed the place where you wanted to become uh, value added, went and became value added and then ended up working there. How long, I mean, how long did they exploit you for before they started uh, taking <laughs> on a remunerated basis? It was a couple months, but like, honestly, that's like, especially in this, this economy, like if anyone's like trying to, I don't want to tell you to like harass someone to, to tell them to get you a job, but you need to be constantly on their radar because they have so much, they're dealing with so many people, so many emails every day. And you have to just like, con especially people that are super busy and are, are leading organizations. Uh, what's the worst that can happen, right? Like they just like say like F off get get lost like whatever you know i think people need to shoot their shot and, and just just go for it um and that was kind of my attitude back then so <laughs> i was like 23 i think and um just really wanted to be there so and what did you cover for breitbart so i was covering basically exclusively foreign policy so there was a lot of stuff going on you know the u.s was so bogged down Everywhere in Africa, everywhere in the Middle East, Afghanistan, same thing that's happening now, basically, right? So nothing really changes. Um, we didn't really have that China. Well, the China threat was there, but now it's so on everyone's radar, which well, is good. Well, I'm going to give credit to my father. My father has been pred predicting that China would be a threat for the last 20 to 30 years. And yeah. none of us were listening. I was 10 or 15 at the time, but none of us were listening and it's come to fruition in a way that I, I think even he could not have predicted. Of course, he also predicted that rap would no longer be popular in, <laughs> in the year 2000. So he gets some right, he gets some wrong. But um, what was I gonna say? Oh, Chris Banks, nobody should work for free. When you are investing with somebody and you're getting the experience, it's not free, you're getting something out of it. But I think any decent employer should still nonetheless pay and not accept free work. But you go there, you're, you're doing, what type of journalism uh, for them, just r covering random subjects that you have an interest in before they take you on as a formal employee? Yeah, I was just submitting random commentary pieces. You know, they were just kind of like a loosely connected shop back then. And um, 
you could just write about whatever. And if it gets approved, it gets approved. You know, it was interesting because like <laughs> they had such a solid crew back then, um, you know, people that really went on to become huge. Like I remember I was corresponding with um, Ben Shapiro, who was an editor at the time. And like, just like, you know, Ben Shapiro was literally editing some stories. <laughs> and now, of course, I don't think he does that anymore because he's just got so much stuff going on. But they had quite the roster back then. Um, yeah, I would just submit something. And when I was doing it for free, trying to get on their radar, maybe like half of them would get um, declined, half of them would get approved, but they were super flexible. And I think that you can basically, like if you're an aspiring writer and you have something interesting to say, there's still plenty of publications that are willing to do that, like uh, like, a, like Town Hall or Daily Caller. Um, just get in touch with like their editors on Twitter or something, American Greatness. Uh, I'm sure they'd be like, if you have something interesting to say and you think it's compelling, like they'd be definitely willing to publish that kind of stuff because, you know, people like me are going to Substack and being um, more difficult to reach and not willing to write for these publications anymore. So it creates like this opportunity for, I think, a lot of young people uh, to get into that space. And these, some of these institutions still have good funding, some, some wealthy people behind them. They're always looking for writers. What led you into uh, Substack? Um, yeah, so I think it was time once I kind of like built up a significant enough audience that for whatever reason, people think I have interesting things to say. I, I, it's, it's still a hard thing, time believing that. But, but uh, yeah, I kind of just wanted the flexibility to um, do whatever, just, just work for myself. And, you know, I still like have a lot of clients on the side who um, I work for um, in a different capacity, whether it's like writing, researching and doing some comms work for them, some PR work for them. But I like just being able to totally set my agenda. I've never been someone that just tries to work, wants to be like in this in a big organization or even a small organization. I want to do it myself. So. I think you guys can obviously relate to that, having this channel, right, and your own system now, and your your locals page, which uh, you know I think Dave Rubin's a genius to establish that, and I, I think it's going pretty well. It's it's uh, I think I saw a quote from Naval. I don't know how I ended up fo following Naval on Twitter, but he says once you become self-employed, you become unemployable. Yes, um, yes. And I, and I went. It, it was it, it hit a little bit home because I started off at the big firm started off my own firm when I left and somehow found a way to be sustainable on YouTube doing this. And it's blossomed into my absolute ikigai. Um, but it is, it, it is a weird thing. You mentioned like people are interested in what you have to say and you walk around. I don't know if you do to the same extent I do with this imposter syndrome where you say like, what, what am I doing? That's so unique. What am I doing? That's insightful. Yes. Uh, I hope it is, but sometimes you doubt yourself. First of all, how do you get past that? Do you get past that? Or have you not yet gotten past that feeling? Um, you, you try to keep the ego in check. I think that's been, been effective for me. I actually, um, so I've really gotten into martial arts and I, I train uh, in jujitsu three times a week. And there have been people there that are really good black belts that, that you know, kick my butt from time to time. So that's definitely a humbling experience. I, I think it's good to find something that you're not the best at. Like, I, I think that, like, I can go, I'm a pretty good writer, and uh, I think that I'm a pretty good researcher, and I have a really good filter for, for information, and, like, I can compete with the best of them on that. So I think it's good for people to find something that you're, like, 
you, you want to start at or, or you're kind of like moderately decent at that. That's a humbling experience for, for me. That's, that's worked out pretty well. And uh, I, I think that that definitely keeps me in check, but it, it is, it is strange that, you know, that this, um, it, what you mentioned about being unemployable, I can, I can definitely relate. Cause like if someone walked up to me today and they're like, okay, I'll, I'll pay you what you think you're worth. Um, you know, if you sign on for us with, with, for a year and you commit to us, I'd be like, absolutely not. You know, <laughs> I'm just not at all interested in, in doing something like that. So I, I totally understand, you know, the flexibility of, and like being able to work as, as hard as you want. And I, I think the quality of your work when you work for yourself is, is the best it will ever be because you only have yourself to, to blame when, when things, things go south and you can take credit for everything when things are good. So it, it's, it's very motivating for me to work for myself. Well, I mean, our constitutional democracy was founded on the idea that you have a lot of self, effectively self-employed people. Independent mm -hmm. proprietors would be the best at protecting constitutional rights and liberties, which we've kind of seen over the last year. I confess I've never been afflicted with any imposter construct, uh, but that's that, <laughs> a different mindset when I was young. The uh, But it, one great utility of Substack, like locals, and that's vivabarneslaw.locals.com for those that may be inquiring, The is the utility of being free of corporate sponsors and to give an example of that and we'll bridge into a little bit later how the covid dynamic a lot of people on the right took the bait on within the political and media establishments and how that created space for the independent research that you've been doing exposing all the lies along the lockdown path but just to use as a recent example black rifle coffee company those bunch of scam artists fraudsters, grifters, who decided to defame and smear a kid from Kenosha, Wisconsin, just because they wanted a front page cover from the New York Times. But rather than honest media coverage, Blaze, uh, uh, Clay Travis, who's, be I mean, he's got to change his, he has a DB, a DBAP slogan and on his t-shirts, means don't be, a, you know, he needs to just take the don't off and then it'll be honest and accurate. But, you know, he and Buck Sexton, the Rush Limbaugh replacement, Dana Loesch, these people did bogus cover stories for Black Rifle Coffee Company the day after they basically smeared everybody connected to Kyle Rittenhouse, smeared many conservatives, smeared. And it's because Black Rifle Coffee Company is a key advertiser for them. So, of course, they're going to eat crow and spin nonsense for them. One of the great utilities of locals, one of the great utilities of Substack is freeing content creators up from corporate sugar daddies so you don't have to smear a kid like Clay Travis helped do by promoting the scam artist Black Rifle Coffee Company. Oh, but Robert, you you also may suffer from the too much knowledge syndrome. So for those who don't know of the Black Rifle scandal, uh, it, summarily, I mean, you got into it, but what, what exactly happened for those who may not know why you're so angry and why so many people are so angry with them? So Black Rifle Coffee Company has made almost all of its money promoting itself as a Second Amendment supporting, self-defense supporting, old school Americana, uh, you know, hunters uh, supporting uh, uh, people that are on the right, you know, pro-vet, pro-military, you know, sometimes, frankly, in, in sort of glitchy uh, ways. In other words, you know, put a chick with a bikini and look at how tough we are and we eat lots of bacon, a lot of that routine. So there was always reason to be a little skeptical of them. And somebody else that Joe Rogan loves to promote, he always accidentally ends up stumbling into promoting left-wingers so people can do their own math on that. Uh, but, the, uh, but basically promoted themselves that way. When Kyle Rittenhouse got out, uh, got received bail, he happened to be wearing a Black Rifle Coffee Company T-shirt. That's it. The uh, immediate uh, Elijah Schaefer for The Blaze said, hey, this is what good coffee is like, just pointing that out. 
They demand uh, Black Rifle Coffee Company demanded Elijah Schaefer, who they advertise on his show, take that down. They uh, then they issued a basically a demeaning statement about Kyle that did damage to him in the court of public opinion, you know, based on nonsense, because these people get their news source from people like Joe Rogan uh, and on a lot of issues like this. I mean, Joe Rogan had Tim Dillon on and he smeared the whole family because, you know, stick to comedy, Timmy. Uh, so the I mean, these are people who don't know what they're doing. So then they but it's one thing to do that, to smear him the first time and to say we have nothing to do with his defense and so on and so forth. But then they double down. They they do a special uh, uh, news hit piece, basically, on the conservative movement in The New York Times, saying how they didn't really want to be the Starbucks of the right. And they specifically, in the context of Kyle Rittenhouse, defamed everybody that supported him, people around him, smeared him, called him racist, uh, attacked him for th- had nothing to do with anything. And then the net, because they started getting, and by the way, they promoted this piece. So this wasn't a hit piece on them. They themselves promoted it. Uh, then the next day, because they're getting bleeding cash with people canceling Black Rifle Coffee Company left and left and right, they go on. Uh, the you know Clay Travis and Buck Sexton are replacing part of Rush Limbaugh. Terrible, boring show. It's already not good. But putting that aside, they do this long puff piece interview with him. Uh, Dana Loesch does a uh, does a you know, some other people did some uh, puff piece with him. A bunch of talk radio people did puff pieces with him. Not being honest, such that people on my locals board are like, "Oh, is that just a fake hit piece?" No, Black Rifle Coffee Company deliberately threw conservatives and Kyle Rittenhouse under the bus to serve their interests. They are willing to smear a kid to promote their economic interest, and they deserve consequence for it. But sadly, many of our corporate co-opted media are unwilling to do that and are running cover for them for some low-level ads. And one of the great utilities of Substack and locals is freeing people up from that level of corporate sponsorship control. It's why people like Alex Jones have been free of it for a very long time. They you know, sell their own product. So how much was that important to you to be free of? You don't have any donors uh, that are controlling you. You don't have any corporate sponsors that are controlling you. You can say what you want. You can uh, go where you want to go. You don't have to be like Sean Hannity and start saying you know, certain things different than you said a month ago about the COVID vaccine, for example, that you're free of. I mean, nobody advertises on Fox more than Big Pharma. Do the math, folks. Uh, how much is that important to you as part of the Substack component? Yeah, it's everything to be censorship proof these days. I, I, I was just actually at um, CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference in Dallas, Texas, and and I have a lot of good friends in politics and in commentary, and you know even politicians. And it, it, it's tough to even have a conversation, an open conversation with these people in public about controversial issues because they don't want to put themselves out there because they're just very politically inclined to not want to go too far on anything. And it just creates like this weak environment. And you do see that in the media a lot too, that a hesitancy to tackle the big issues. And that's one of the things, and to Substack's great credit, I'm sure to Local's great credit, that they have stood behind their creators entirely. I don't know any examples from those two platforms of anyone being like demonetized or censored for saying something controversial. They're just totally behind the, the concept of, of free and open speech. And, but it is a, it is a huge problem. Uh, and just in the United States in general, now people that are unwilling to say what they think, because they know that there's kind of like these political guardrails that they don't want to exit the, 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 this area of proper conversation. And like, I'm a very diplomatic person, but I'll, I'll tell you what my opinion is on something. But a lot of people nowadays, um, especially in Washington, DC, 
it's very rare that you'll be able to have an open conversation with someone that works in politics or lobbying about something, uh, especially if they know, you know, where you, where you come from, if you have some, some kind of significant interest, it's just, it's a very weird place in America that we're always kind of watching our backs, um, making sure that we're saying the right thing, the PC thing. I, th that's one of the huge things about Substack and, and locals and, uh, you know, some great video streaming platforms that you can just kind of say what you think. And it's, it's very powerful to, to have the backing of institutions that allow you to do that. Well, there, there, I've always said there's some, there's still some pressure or there's some, you know, you know who your audience is. And if you go out and do things, they're going to shock your audience. You might lose some of your supporters, but you, you've hedged the risk a lot more. But by and large, depending on your community, they are following you for your honesty and not for your your, your angle, but which actually getting to something that I read, I don't know, I hope it's not too touchy. Uh, you, well, your departure from Breitbart uh, in 20, was it in 2016 that you left Breitbart? Yeah. And you left on terms that are, you know, perfectly in line with exactly what you're saying right now, which is uh, believing what you believe and not being shy to express it. And so I mean, t tell to everybody how your time at Breitbart came to an end. And I don't know if there's been any lingering, uh, lingering damage as a result of, of that of that relationship ending yeah so basically what happened is that <laughs> I, I don't want to open up old wounds but mm -hmm. um, I, I was just like you know a, a right-wing journalist commentator at the time and I, I was uncomfortable with the direction they were going in and uh, without getting into too much detail <laughs> I, I basically I, I, I regrettably um, made a statement to the press about why I left. And that, that was my only regret. Um, I don't regret leaving Breitbart. And I, I think I've gone on to do some decent things. And I, I've, I'm on good terms with all those people. And, I, and, I, and I'm, in a, I'm in a good place. I have nothing but good things to say about those folks. They're, they're super talented writers and uh, contributors there. They have a great roster. And um, They've um, they've also I think moved on from some tumultuous uh, times that they were having back then. This is I guess second movie refer movie reference of the night. The Amy Winehouse documentary. Some I forget who said it in the movie, but they said basically life can teach you a lot if you live long enough. And I I, I appreciate exactly what you're saying right now. Is that when you're young you, you say things, and in the age in which we live you say things that ring forever. Given the internet, yeah. given the it, it never goes away, and if you're surrounded by people who are forgiving and understanding, they'll forgive and they'll understand. If you're surrounded by people who are malicious and want to perpetually use your wrongs against you, despite all other behavior to the contrary, they'll do that. And that's the line that everybody has to walk, especially when you're living in, in the social media age. So, I mean, it's an interesting perspective. And I didn't mean to open up old wounds. I just, I, I was doing some research and, and saw it, thought it was interesting because, you know, you had principles, whether or not, whether or not th th things never end well when they end, but it's good to see that it ended well to the extent that everyone's moved on. Now, another thing that I found is you have a very minimal social media footprint uh, in terms of information, in terms of background. Is that deliberate? And if it's deliberate, how do you go about doing it? I mean, for anybody who's looking as to how to keep a low profile social media footprint. Yeah. So like I have a lot of friends that uh, deliberately created a Wikipedia page for themselves. And I always thought that was an awful idea. I, I have a blue check on Twitter. That's like as far as like publicly verified that I want to go. But notably, like I, I'm also becoming kind of like anti-credentials nowadays. So I make it 
specifically difficult for people to like find out stuff about me because I, I, I think credentials nowadays are, are very overrated because our institutions are all weird and corrupted and not necessarily, you know, a meritocracy whatsoever, but yeah, you know, I've never been the type of person that wants to be like the next, like, uh, big time TV commentator. I'd much rather have like you know, a long form conversation with with you guys. So so I'm not out there to impress anyone. If people like what I have to say, that's great. You know, like follow me, subscribe to my work, and and do whatever you you want to do. But I was never really in this on like the show business element type. So I was I'm not. I, I'm like so grateful that people are willing to support me and stuff like that. But I that, that's kind of one of the reasons why I've never. I tried to like establish a, a huge profile for myself because I was like, that's just not me. I'm not trying to be some like uh, nightly TV anchor or any any crap like that. So so that's kind of why it's probably difficult to find a sophisticated biography on me because most people that have that kind of setup have done it themselves or have had like, you know, if you're working at Fox, you'll have like your assistant do it for you and it's just something, it only creates problems by the way. Like it, the more you could become like, especially with the journalism that I've been doing, like, I don't want people to be able to censor me as easily as they want to. Uh, and I'm very aware of the conversation topics and I'm seeing people like, um, you know, like a lot of my buddies are, are being deplatformed and, and you have to realistically navigate your way around that. So um, I would like to make it difficult for the folks that like media matters, make their job a little harder <laughs> to, uh, you know, blast me and get like the SPLC and all those junk organizations on my case. So keeping a low profile kind of helps me in that regard. So, yeah, basically you want your work judged by the quality of the arguments contained within it, not the credentials of the individual writing it. Yeah. Even though in your case you have the credentials, but the, uh, going past that, I mean, like, I mean, it, it, it I, I used to know how people were uh, approaching whatever the political controversy of a client I was representing because of how they defined me. So if there was someone on the right who didn't like what I was doing, then it was Robert Barnes, comma, Ralph Nader's lawyer, Wesley Snipes' lawyer, Jill Stein's lawyer, whatever. Now people on the left, it's Robert Barnes, comma, Alex Jones's lawyer, Covington Kid's lawyer, Kyle Rittenhouse's lawyer, et cetera. Uh, it's always fascinating how they want to limit the quality of the argument being made. Uh, by uh, who it is that's making it, which is always a sign to me they can't attack the substance of the argument. The argument's weak. You don't have to take pot shots at the person arguing. The uh, uh, But putting that aside, the aside from shifting to Substack with an independent content creator model, the other move you made was from D.C. to uh, Florida. What uh, precipitated that other than maybe the obvious? Yeah. So, so before I answer that, I, I was, I was researching your guys like YouTube channel and I saw that you had Alex Jones on last week and, and me from like two years ago would have been like, Oh my God, I'm following Alex Jones. Like, I, I don't know what to do, but I was like, you know, like I'm so humbled now. Like that's amazing. Alex Jones is such a funny, you know, incredible the, dude. <laughs> the, the amazing thing is to say, I struggled with, with that decision. I mean, Robert <laughs> and I had been discussing it for a while. I just struggled with it for all the same reasons you just mentioned the social mm -hmm. impact. Like you have Alex Jones on, First of all, people have stigmatized Alex Jones despite having never heard an actual word he said. People might stigmatize him for, for legitimate reasons, but it's like once you have that association, everybody, you're, you're dirty by association um, on the one hand. And so, you know, I have friends and family who might not like the fact that I even gave him a voice as, th as though he, he needs me to give him a voice and not, you know, right. the other way around. 
Um, but YouTube actually allowed the video to stay up and they actually re-monetized it after I asked them to review it because I didn't think there was anything shocking or offensive or not advertiser friendly in it. So fingers crossed, you know, the tide might be turning at YouTube, but it's not. But yeah, that, that, was, that was a big one. Like you, that's where you have to say, I'm going to do it, do it with integrity and hope that if people judge me, they judge me. But that's, that was the end of it. And, and it went well. It was great. But yeah, it's, it's from Alex Jones to Jordan Schachtel and everybody's got a story to tell. Um, and you're telling yours. So what was the second question that Robert asked? Uh, so I, I remember it. it's, it's why I didn't move from DC to Florida. Yes. So it was, it, was, it was entirely COVID related. I mean, I have a lot of good friends in DC and I'm still back and forth from DC a lot of time for, for work and stuff like that. But like DC was totally shut down. Almost all of my favorite uh, restaurants, bars in DC are, are gone forever. Like COVID crushed the, the local economy in Washington and I was just like sitting in my apartment. My friends didn't want to do anything. Um, I was traveling a bit, but I was like, and man, like every time I come back to DC, like this sucks. And uh, Trump had just, um, well, Biden was just, you know, had won the election and not going to go there. <laughs> You're on YouTube. A lot of people in the chat. <laughs> but. Uh, his fraudulency the second. Yeah. <laughs> he was appointed. He was anointed and what's the word? Uh, sworn in. Government was turning over and I found that it was a good time. Um, you know, I grew up coming to Florida a lot. I have family and friends in Florida. Um, I'm in an undisclosed location, Southeast Florida. It's great. Um, I so much appreciate Ron DeSantis leadership for what he's done in letting us live our, our free lives Florida has been open for so long. I've been here since about um, the beginning of the year and I have nothing but good things to say about it. I don't know if this will be like my permanent long-term destination. I'm really enjoying it now. Um, I am a little concerned that uh, if, if I were to move back to the Northeast anytime soon, that I would see a rehash of, of the COVID stupidity. So I don't plan on, on moving anytime soon because I, I think that that's probably the next step for these um these, these monsters that are that are leading these state governments. But yeah, yeah, I, I like it. We have great communities here, good food, um, good coffee, nice people. <laughs> Nothing but good things to say. We have beaches. Freedom. I, I don't know what is better than sunlight and freedom and, you yeah. know, you know, and beaches and fishing. Um, but so you, you've been covering, I mean, let's get into some of the, the some of the stuff you've been covering and some of, I'll, I'll just ask the, the biggest question. What in your opinion are the biggest stories you've ever broken? Uh, and I mean, I, and I might want to get into some details about them, but so what are some of the bigger things that you've covered that you think you've shed some light on, uh, that was not there before, um, related to the pandemic oh, or in, in general, even beyond the pandemic, but, uh, uh then we'll work well, into the pandemic. I have a pretty crazy story from my time at Breitbart. That was kind of fascinating. And I think it was, it, it contributed to, to Donald Trump's election in, in a way. <laughs> So if you guys remember, remember that like Ashley Madison data leak thing where like all those guys um, information was spilled over, it was hacked and it was available in a publicly accessible database. So I had a contact that was like, hey, maybe you should look through this. Maybe you'll find a good story. And like I'm a national security reporter. Right. So like, what am I going to do with this? But by chance, I was like, OK, like I'm like bored one night. So I'm like filtering through it. And I ended the last name Biden. <laughs> right. And, and next thing you know there's a um, it, Hunter pops up right on the list. Uh, his name is, his name, Robert, 
I think his real name is Robert, Robert Hunter Biden, something like that. But but it was a fascinating thing. And I was like, holy shit, like Biden, Hunter Biden's trying to cheat on his wife. Uh, you know, he was a member of the site. So I, I called my buddy who's like more of like a entertainment reporter. And I was like, delivered that to him. Um, and we I think we like co bylined it. But so we break this story and it, it's one of the biggest stories in, in the press at the time. And then this is right when. Joe Biden is considering running for president. And we break the story on Hunter Biden. Next thing you know, two weeks later, his wife has kicked him out of the, of the house. So it clearly like made inroads in the, in the, in the Biden household. And um, then a couple of weeks later, there's so much family turmoil that Joe Biden decides that he's not going to run this year. So I was thinking, I was like, maybe I kind of contributed towards um, Donald Trump be defeating Hillary Clinton, because if that story had not been broken and Hunter Biden's world was again torn apart from his like reckless, you know, sex, drugs and whatever is going on in his life and, and foreign corruption, that maybe Joe would have decided to run with a more stable family. So that was a very interesting story. But yeah, like I, I broke a lot of um, like over the Trump years, a, a lot of personnel stuff. Um, there was... Uh, so one of the things I was doing that was really pissing off the left was we were doing profiles of government bureaucrats who had significant political um, posts that were in in the social media space, on Twitter, on Facebook. A lot of people in the State Department that were like actively agitating against the president who they were supposed to be working for. A lot of people, DOJ, Department of State. I had a DOD. We had so many people. Um, this was when I was at CRTV, which which merged with uh, Blaze later. And we had so many <laughs> interesting stories on that front. And there's even like a little Wikipedia on, on their page that says like Jordan, uh, of course, like Wikipedia has this bias. So they said Jordan was like slandering these, these, these career noble government bureaucrats, but it was a lot of fun. And we caused a significant amount of chaos in these bureaucracies. And it really opens up your, your eyes to how bad these government bureaucrats are and how much, how disconnected they are from the agenda of the administration. And of course, you know, this was kind of like, um, th this would, this would play out. We were doing this kind of work in like 2016 and 2017, and this would play out so many times in the Trump administration. I mean, his biggest, um, defect as president arguably was that he just couldn't get his staffing in order. And, and those political staffers are, have to keep the bureaucrats in order. So these bureaucrats have, were just tormenting him uh, for, for many years. And we were helping to expose that. Yeah. That was one of the things you constantly exposed on the Ashley Madison thing. I had a, a client, famous baseball player who was thrilled by the fact that he was apparently listed six times in there. He considered <laughs> it a trophy and achievement, but he, he's a unique personality. Another story there. That's another story for another day, as we say. But the one of the yeah, one of the you were one of the uh, people, along with Mike Cernovich and a few others, highlighting how bad the Trump administration personnel decisions were. That you know, really good people were not getting in, were getting railroaded. People who were loyal to him were getting thrown aside, like Michael Flynn, while people who hated the guy kept getting rewarded and and getting to control. And you know, Pat Buchanan wrote a book during this time period about the Nixon administration, same set of problems. Nixon being too distracted by the New York Times and institutional media didn't fully appreciate that personnel was policy and policy was personnel. 
And Trump almost never, I mean, it got better at the end, but there was still massive. I mean, his whole election thing went AWOL because the Republican National Committee was actually undermining him all the way through, raised almost a quarter of a billion dollars for legal fees. To my knowledge, not a penny of it went to election lawyers. Uh, They're, in fact, keeping people out from representing the president, lying to the president about what his election remedies could be. Could you talk about how just how deep, severe and systemic that most of Trump's own appointees were on a daily basis trying to make sure that Trumpism never happened as a matter of policy? Yeah, it it was something that Donald Trump never figured out during his four years as president. Uh, He started very early on taking horrible advice. I mean, his, his, his advisors on like national security and foreign policy were uh, one Condi Rice, who was telling him who to appoint and two Henry Kissinger. And there were a few other people in the mix, but these were like institutional think tankers who were responsible for all the problems that we were dealing with in the 21st century. The problems um, he himself ran against saying these were idiotic policies yeah. and terrible positions. He was putting the people who implemented and administered and supported them in positions of power in his own administration. It was just one person after another. And a lot of people who are loyal to the president will kind of say that he just didn't really, he trusted them too much that if you, if you meet, I I just had the opportunity to meet Donald Trump once and, and he came off very differently. He's a very friendly guy and he's, he's very different. I think from the way that you, you see him in the media and a lot of people don't understand that he's actually like a, uh, a, a decent person who's like uh, he was too forgiving with with the backgrounds of these these political appointees and every single major person whether it was uh, Steve Mnuchin just a terrible Treasury Secretary a total statist um, Rex Tillerson uh, General Mattis General McMaster these people all hated him and despised him and and were just uh, they, they were recommended by bad people. And it was, it, you know, I, I hope that when he throws, if he throws his hat in the ring again, I know that he has good people around him. He just needs to fully embrace what they have to say. Yeah, that, I mean, no doubt about that. Is- now, at some point you transitioned into the COVID coverage where you were one of the few independent voices raising questions from the very get-go about almost everything related to it. Could you describe the investigative process? Because part of your process was the same process I used at the time uh, in terms of just looking at the past, looking at what the protocols had been in the past, looking at what the reactions had been, the public health intervention pro, and just how completely AWOL everything was. Can you describe that? So I've always had kind of like a weird interest, not really a weird interest, but a lot of people like dystopian, uh, post-apocalyptic films and books like World War Z and you know, Bird Box, stuff like that. And it, that was stuff was always fascinating to me. So I was always just like ha- kind of had a separate interest in like, what would happen if there was like a crazy pandemic? What would the CDC do? What would the WHO do? So right when COVID started, that was like the first stuff I, I went into was this like pandemic playbook stuff. And what I found very early on in what was going on in Wuhan, China, was that they were not doing anything that these institutions had recommended based on hundreds of years of human experience dealing with outbreaks. So immediately I was skeptical. Uh, I think far earlier than most people because I just took the time to look at the documentation, which is 
still publicly available. They've done like a good job of covering it up on the CDC and WHO website. They had very different recommendations for pandemic preparedness. There was never a lockdown was not an existing concept um, prior to 2020. A lot of people don't understand this, that it's, it was this radical that it's basically all, it all came back to the Chinese government wanting to show that they were containing a virus. And they did that through, I think, in my opinion, a massive, um, I got to be careful because this is YouTube. I think the Chinese government was running a massive disinformation operation. And in addition to that, they wanted to show that they were doing something. So they use all this ridiculous uh, disinfectant, you know, spraying the streets, locking hey, people in their home. <laughs> you're one step ahead of me. First things first, YouTube overlords. Nothing in this video is either medical advice. Ask your doctor if you have any questions. Mm -hmm. uh, th this was one thing I was just thinking about, and I don't recall who it was that said it. It might have been AJ um, or it might have been Cernovich. The idea that China, with its, with its full internet censorship, with its, you know, uh, uh, forbidding Google, with you know, nothing gets out of China. All of the sudden, in the first two weeks to a month of this, you have like a slew of video being leaked out of China showing the most horrendous, horrific, terrifying things. The trucks going down the street, spraying some spray, all this stuff. And it's now only having seen the world from outside the matrix that I say, how is it that in, if from a country that's, that controls all information, censors all speech, censors all information, bans and blocks the internet. How is it that the only videos we have coming out of there are coming out now and are these particular videos? I mean, in your, in your opinion, this is not medical, professional, legal advice. Was this a coordinated effort from the government to allow for the leak of certain videos, certain information? And if so, why? In my opinion, totally unrelated to the medicinal advice community. Um, from my background in uh, understanding disinformation, I think that China ran an op and it was kind of like a dual pronged situation. Like I talked about, they wanted to show that they were doing something, but they also wanted to screw us over. And they used this opportunity to screw us over big time. And I wrote, um, I have a, pretty long form piece uh, at my Substack dossier.substack.com where you can find this in detail, what exactly China did. And there were a lot of indicators um, as you talked about that this, something was really off here, like the people dropping in the streets that never happened anywhere in the world. There's no, you breathe in COVID and you drop dead type thing. That's a ridiculous thing, but that's what China wanted us to believe. And also these 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 videos and and photos uh, were were released on Western media platforms. They were not released on Chinese media platforms. And China bans these platforms. So how exactly did they did they get these these these? I guess like I guess they call them citizen journalists or whatever. How did they get this stuff on Instagram on uh, on on YouTube on Twitter? It isn't shouldn't people be raising uh, some red flags there. Sure. How, how did it show sure. up on IG over WeChat, right? Like, the, the argument would be that they're specifically not on Chinese news platforms because they're forbidden there and the only place they get leaked to is Western media who runs with them. I guess the bigger question is if that's, if that's the explanation, which would be logical, how are they escaping China in the first place in, in such numbers and in such detail and in such, in such a coordinated fashion for, for lack of a better description? But sorry, go, go, keep going. And not only that, you're totally right. 
China claims to have stopped the virus in its entirety in February and March of 2020 by locking down Wuhan. And China has been very open uh, economically and through their society since then. They claim that this one thing in Wuhan that they did solved all of their COVID problems in the country. And if you look at this COVID chart that they, you know, their numbers they put out, they just stopped reporting cases and COVID was over because they can just decree it over. So a lot of countries, every country that initiated a lockdown instituted it based on this Wuhan example that they thought that they could just lock down the country and their cases would go from up to sideways. And that would be it. It would be over. And there's still countries that are doing this. Um, Australia and New Zealand are, are still propagandized by the stupidity. Um, just the other day, the, the UAE, uh, United Arab Emirates, were spraying the streets with disinfected because what that's what China was doing in Wuhan. Um, Fauci was recommending lockdowns based on the advice of Chinese scientists. This all goes back to China. Uh, but I, I do have to say that eventually we have to, I think the time has come and the time came a long time ago for the West to take responsibility for, for our you know ridiculous naivete on this because we can't just like blame China entirely. Like it is our politicians and bureaucrats who are now forcing this down our throats. Um, sorry, go ahead, Robert. Oh, one of the other things you followed early on was the science behind all of this, in the sense that there were a lot of reports coming out about how it actually spread, what its risk rate really was. You know, you had the ship, you had other circumstances. And what was amazing to me is how the, that data got buried. All the trust the science people would immediately bury any actual science that refuted their assumptions and their politicized agenda. Yeah, the, the, these people are... These people come from academia mostly. They are physician scientists, the people making these claims that the, these, these mitigation suppression strategy works. Um, I just have to be super careful about like blowing them up too much because I know YouTube is super sensitive about this. But I would say that these people have not contributed to society in any significant manner um, ever. What has a public health expert ever done for well, society. It, the, is, the whole concept of a public health expert, I think it is preposterous. Imagine if you went to a, a family doctor and you said like, oh, uh, you know, uh, my, my brother's depressed. So the, the, the public health expert would say, okay, antidepressants for the whole family to deal with this. Like that's, but, but uh, now they're dealing with this on a societal level. Like they, they, the whole concept of a public health expert, I think is just like uh, collectivist nonsense. Well, especially since they're politically appointed, they're advising the pol politicians who appointed them. Then mm -hmm. you have the courts whose judges are appointed by the politicians adjudicating on the legal questions resulting from the decisions of the politicians. It's judicially incestuous in the most intimate manner. But one anecdotal thing, like I have a high school buddy who lives in China now, and I have a couple of other contacts. I'm not a journalist, so I don't, you know, I don't quote people and whatever, but they've been telling me like life in China has been nothing compared to what they see as life in Canada, life in Australia, life in New Zealand, life in the UK. And the question is, did our government see this, get traumatized and think this is what they have to do in order to give the impression of, 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 a, of an effective battle? Or did they see this as a power grab uh, to implement what everyone else is talking about? You know, the, the things that were called conspiracy theories until people actually saw the template the order of the day on the world economic forum you know it, it was it malice was it incompetence or was it a, a combination of both in your uh 
humble opinion as a journalist who has done a lot of research on this? It's a combination. You, you see that some people have grown to really love the spotlight, uh, particularly uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who whose messaging has changed dramatically from his early days of just kind of like realizing, I think he was delivering great advice about certain topics that I can't elaborate on. <laughs> but I think that he was a humble scientist who just came to enjoy his media appearances a little too much and his control a little too much. And that put us in a situation where we have all these MDs and PhDs becoming like Twitter and Instagram stars and just living in the fame of this like conformity and, and embracing the, this safety regime because this can like elevate their profiles. And it, it's, it's so despicable. And, um, you know, I have a hard time having any respect for these people because I think they know exactly what they're doing, um, especially it's so tough because I, I can't get into specific topics on YouTube, oh, <laughs> but you know what I'm be, saying. Yeah, it'll be a good uh, it'll be a good ad to go follow you on Substack for the more in depth conversations. Yeah. Suffice only to say here, uh, Fauci, I believe, is the highest paid federal employee in the United States. Never missed a paycheck. We coming out of Canada have our you know the health officers in Ontario who get paid three hundred and fifteen thousand Canadian dollars. That's like that's still a lot by Canadian standards, and they're all the ones saying. It's for your own good. We're going to lock you down for a little bit longer. Here's your 2000 bucks a month. We get our full paychecks on your tax dollars, um, but it's for your own good. We're not, we're not ready to reopen yet, uh, despite the numbers that they have. And I mean, the moving goalposts, you've seen the moving goalposts from day one. I've seen it. It's just that everyone has lost so much already. Nobody wants to call it out anymore because you have to recognize your losses to do so. But it, 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 is, it is over the top. The power, the prestige... The, the the what is it called venerate what's it called veneration when when you're adored gretchen whitmer giving a, a press conference with a, a fauci embroidered pillow in the background they've been deified and it gets to their head like robert you always say true test is how one deals with power i guess yeah, I mean, the, the combination of uh, stress or success reveals a lot of people either one but the but going into I mean, you documented not only the exaggerated threat, but I thought one of the utilities was like I was curious why certain people could see through the charade versus those that couldn't. And I could understand the people that were corporate compromised. So if you're at Fox News, you're almost your number one source of advertising is Big Pharma. Big Pharma is expected to make a lot of money with either certain therapeutics or vaccines down the road. The there's no interest or in, and with pre-existing drugs that, you know, people start questioning this particular therapeutic or this particular group of public health officials or medical uh, establishment, maybe they question some other ones, uh, you know, in ways that people don't want. So I understood that. But what was striking to me was how I, I describe it as a, a dividing line for people. I was like, you can tell whether someone's truly independent of thought by how they reacted to everything associated with the pandemic. What do you think was in your back? I mean, part of it, I thought the national security background was very useful because this was really a national security political issue, not really a public health, disguised and, mas and masked as a public health issue. But what else do you think was in your background that allowed you to have that independent skepticism right out of the gate where other people were just biting and swallowing whatever Fauci was feeding them today? In, in addition to that, yeah, it's so important to lean on the side of liberty. And when people 
from the government tell you that they're there to assist you and uh, you know ronald reagan's famous quote but um yeah i, I don't know I, I guess it was just like i i've just always been um uh, not not a contrarian but questioning the prevailing narratives not necessarily buying into them without evidence um definitely more of like a don't trust but verify person <laughs> but it, it's so important to nowadays and I, I think i've been more radicalized in this sense in, in a positive manner to to lean on liberty you you can't just especially when you understand the function of the federal government, whether it's here, Canada, or elsewhere, that you need to prioritize human freedom. People need to be able to make decisions for themselves. So when these bureaucrats are, and these very unimpressive bureaucrats, by the way, I think this is like a, a big time distinction between people who kind of get it on the COVID stuff and people who don't. People who you know deify, as, as you said, these, these individuals who are who are just like, not competent, wouldn't really make it on, on their own and haven't really done anything impressive. I think that's been a dividing line for a lot of people is if you can see through what their, you know, if they have a nice resume like Fauci or credentials, like a, like a Harvard chair of public health or somewhere that's like, you know, paid for by China or whatever. But when you kind of can see through this picture and in addition to that, you, I, I never want to put people in a position where their life is being affected by government in a negative manner. I, I'm totally, uh, a, I'm not like a Michael Malice anarchist, but I, I'm moving more in that direction every day when I see the atrocities that are being committed by the government in the names of, of helping people. It's, it's, it's in Canada. We have the prime minister you know, tweeting daily. We're here to help you get through this. Uh, literally, it's not even the way a, a good parent would deal with their kids who's going through something tough. It's pandering. It is infantilizing the general population, empowering the government, and leading people to come to the conclusions that they're incapable of, of fending for themselves. They're incapable of taking care of themselves. And it's a, it's a straight-up abusive relationship where the government causes the harm that they then come in and say, here's the Band-Aid for the boo-boo that I just gave you. Um, because studies are coming out now We'll see the numbers. We know the numbers. And I, I've tweeted it to Francois Legault, our PM, that more young people are succumbing to the, to the restrictions than to the virus itself. And the numbers, when, we, when this started off, we've all forgotten. It was two weeks to flatten the curve, not to overwhelm the healthcare facilities. It's a year and a half later, and our governments have chosen to launder our taxpayer dollars for, through $13 million a month in COVID awareness to buy the media to get the media dependent on that government funding for advertising to control the message. They put $150 million into that and not healthcare infrastructure. And it is, it, it is all a form of laundering taxpayer dollars through advertising. Some people in the chat are saying, well, at least in Canada, you guys get $2,000 a month. Yeah. First, if you're eligible, second, it's taxable. So the government takes your tax dollars, subsidizes you because they put you out of business, taxes you on that money, and someone's got to pay it back. And it sure as hell is not any of them. Sorry, you got me started again. But yes, it is. It, we are being we are being led by incompetence, and it's not difficult to understand how some people confound that or attribute that to malice. And at the end of the day, when you know you're incompetent and you keep governing, it is malice. Yeah, I think in Canada especially. 
one of the worst things, Canada has the nice people, but it's also been your biggest weakness is that Canada has a very subservient population to government. And when you put yourself in that situation, especially under a parliamentary system that has a lot of control over all aspects of your life, I, I think that's what makes the United States uniquely different and why we had examples in Florida and Texas um, and South Dakota and Arizona and in a lot of states where people were able to live free lives and people kind of had this functioning understanding that government might not be your friend from time to time. And in the rest of the Anglosphere, the exact opposite happens. In the UK, you still have this mess. Um, in New Zealand and Australia, we already talked about. In Canada, a total mess. So um, if something is to be said about the founders' wisdom, it, it's, it's really, the founders of the United States wisdom, it's really showing itself today in our in our federalist system but yet like canada and in in a lot of europe and in new zealand you you often find a very subservient population that is too trusting of government and it has come back to backfire i mean sometimes it works like sometimes the, the sweden example S swedes are very trusting of their government too luckily their government made the right decision and decided to let them stay free but in canada uh, the opposite happened. Have you, have you noticed how news on Sweden's response has entirely fallen off me any media coverage? Mm -hmm. it, it's it, it's basically the, part of the burned the uh, the the disallowed uh, restricted book mm -hmm. section. You're just not allowed to talk about Sweden. <laughs> um, th this is a question for both you and Robert, actually, because I'm living in Canada. I'm seeing it on social media. It seems that the blue check marks of Twitter are now greatly focusing on Republicans who are coming out and saying, you know, positive things about vaccination. Uh, my, my initial reflex was, oh, it must be true. Then my skeptical side says, it's probably not any truer today than it was last week, but the media is now making a, con a concerted effort to pick up on any soundbite from any Republican who is saying something beneficial or, you know, encouraging to go get vaccinated. Um, is that correct, or is there in fact a shifting tide even among the GOP to publicly come out and loud the benefits of vaccination? That's a complex one. So I have to be careful here again. Mitch McConnell came out today and said, get vaccinated or, or you have to go back into lockdown. And I think he's a disgusting animal for saying something like that. Um, again, it's time for some turtle soup. <laughs> it's time to, to divvy up the turtle. But but then you have DeSantis who comes out, and I was going to tweet it, but I, I I don't like retweeting or getting involved in these things because I don't want anyone thinking I'm telling them what to do with their body. DeSantis comes yeah. out with a message. It's much more tempered. It's much more logical. It's much more the way it should be done. Here are the stats. Make up your own decision, but we are not mandating anything for you, which I like. Uh, but but yeah, so McConnell comes out, and my goodness, uh, it looked like he was being held at gunpoint when, <laughs> when he said what he said from my own perspective. Yeah, but no, but is it more of them or is it just the blue check marks now focusing on this to try to spin the narrative? Look at the GOP uh, pulling 180s. Uh, good for well, them or it, you can't trust them? Because of Big Pharma and other people, because they just had Trafalgar, uh, Trafalgar just had a poll out, which is the same as what Richard Barris reported. Won't go into too much details because they cut Richard Barris off live when he was talking about which groups were on this side. But 80%, almost 80% of uh, the country, and Republicans in particular at least, I think it's 60% nationwide, 80% of Republicans oppose any forced vaccines, period, of the adult population, particularly for this. And what's incredible is throughout the whole, and this would be good, we'll start with the historical aspect, 
because this day we, we're we, for YouTube's purposes. We we're not talking about the current pandemic. We're just talking about past pandemics. For the Spanish flu, Hong Kong flu, uh, a, the Asian flu. You know, the Spanish flu itself also came from China. Another interesting story. But putting all that aside, all three, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands listed as dead back when we had a lot more strict causation standards than we do on this one, one might add. But uh, can you remember that there were no lockdowns of churches, no lock mass lockdown, national lockdowns of schools, national. I mean, there was selective lockdowns in certain places for select groups of people for select periods of time related to a specific risk. But the, can you remember even during the Spanish flu, we never shut down all businesses. We never shut down all travel. We but didn't Robert, require masks everywhere in the country. And we didn't do forced medical medical treatment. So, uh, someone, and someone, all of that has been wiped out from public knowledge. But someone someone pushed back on the Spanish flu where they highlight the fact that there were, in fact, in fact, mask mandates in certain cities. There were, in, in fact, certain cities in there certain were. Areas. Yes. But even there, it, it was all limited. So and it would be specific when it had a peak epidemic outbreak, then they had people wear masks in certain locations within certain jurisdictions, but it wasn't nationwide. It wasn't anything else. And that was back when they did not know what the Spanish flu was. Right. And the other thing you can talk about, like one of the things I thought that was really good is you just went back, not only looking at how they have historically treated it, what the WHO and CDC said just a few years ago about how this should work. But also, for example, we'd had tons of mask studies. So we're not talking for YouTube purposes about the current pandemic. But there was lots of studies about how effective masks would be for an influenza virus. And those studies didn't support what the current set of policies are. I, I suspect those studies uh, were what um, pr uh, predicated or preceded the disclaimers that are found on all those boxes. The idea and that anyone says we found out new technology or new information or new studies about face masks. I have, I, I'm not a doctor. Consult with your doctor. As a pure logical lawyer, I have a great deal of difficulty thinking that we have discovered anything new about the science of face masks in the last year that we did not already knew did not already know beforehand. Not scientists talking, but yeah, sorry, Jordan, what do you have to say about yeah, that? Yeah, no, there were no randomized controlled trials, which is supposedly the gold standard for for trials um, on masks during this time period. They had eighteen months to do something, and nothing came out to show that to support their claims that they're making about this topic. There was a one randomized control trial that came out in Denmark that ruled out the efficacy of masks from the wearer's perspective, preventing you from being infected with COVID, that there was no benefit to the mask wearers. So the establishment press and Big Pharma and that public health expert coalition said, well, they didn't rule out masks as a form of spreading illness from one person to someone else. So that's what they're kind of going by. And when they talk about the evidence for this topic, they they stress a lot of models, a lot of a lot of studies done by the CDC, but no trials. There, there's no there's no hard data on this on this topic to make their case. And there never has been. And one of the things you did a lot of investigative reporting was just, you know, getting the data and publishing the data and how often the data just didn't support the institutional narrative. So that data would disappear from institutional coverage. I mean, we're now even to the point where somehow the uh, the vaccine reporting system is now suddenly utterly untrustworthy and unreliable. You can't even look at it. Can't even think about it. Totally nonsense. Doesn't apply. 
And it's like I, I decided to do a, a search, DuckDuckGo search. I was like, well, before 2020, was, were there a bunch of criticisms of this? Turned out there were a few criticisms. It was that it underreported the problem repeatedly, historically, VAERS did. And it's um, have you been so I've been as shocked as anything about the methodology, like from a lawyer's perspective, that, you know, all of a sudden we, we skip the legislative branch. We skip the public approval. We skip uh, a meaningful evidentiary trial. Nobody's required to actually present the evidence so we can assess it and judge it and critique it one way or the other. Have you been surprised that, like, in other words, they've operated this like you would a national security emergency, not like you would normally a domestic legislative agenda? Yeah, from what I understand, VARES is a very open platform. So if you want to submit something and you're a doctor, you, you throw it in there. Or if you have some other contact, you can just, you know, initiate a file with the VARES system. And it's imperfect, but I think you can at least learn a lot from people's contributions to it. Um, there, there are not as many vetting mechanisms as we'd like them to have, but at least uh, I think it's something. And, and for for um, for these people to make claims that it's totally you should totally disregard it, I think is a mistake because I, I think you can kind of see a parallel as you're talking about kind of in the national security space. I, I'd say it's more so like a raw intelligence data set, and you get out what you um, can. I guess um, not to belabor this point, because I think we can probably talk and agree on this for a long time in your in your journalistic endeavors, uh, Jordan, have you gotten something radically wrong or something that turned out to be radically wrong that has traumatized you for the better in terms of your process going forward? Yeah, so this involved sources and I can't get too specific about it, but um there was someone who led me the wrong way, and I and I learned I learned a hard lesson about relying too much on sources, and and it only happened once, but it, it was um, you know something that my editors back then were were aware of, and I, I apologized to the, the the person who was the target, and and I um, kind of uh, outed the source and basically said that you should not. Um, trust this person and it's and I took responsibility for it and it goes it really taught me a lesson to rely on anonymous sources as little as possible and the best case scenario you never rely on these people because they're just really out there to peddle an agenda why the Washington Post and New York Times use these people is because they create this kind of distance so if the story happens to be untrue they can just blame the source or just say that you know, something. So that's why, like, when they were pushing all this Trump Russia stuff, they said, oh, you know, the source is a tape, but we didn't get the tape, but the source read the tape to us. So that's, they kind of create this disconnect so they can peddle fiction. But one of the big lessons I learned um, in the journalism space was never rely on anonymous sources because eventually you get burned by them. And I think it's just kind of like unethical to, to heavily report based on these concepts anyway. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's what MSM does is they report on the anonymous sources. Uh, I don't think they worry about getting burnt. I think it's part of the design. It's, it's effectively the wrap up smears. One reports on it. The other one reports on that report. And by the end of it, you've actually lost sight of the fact that it was based on an anonymous source from Trump removing the MLK, was it MLK bust from the White House to 
you know, SHIT whole countries, anonymous sources. But by the time uh, anyone realizes that story's been reported and re-reported, what's the letter? The letter you might have said, but <laughs> that's another story. The uh, uh, but the MLK bus was totally fake. But speaking of sourcing, because I think that that's a, a good bridge into RussiaGate coverage. That the if you're in the national security space, especially. Then you can know, like I have Seymour Hirsch's book uh, that was sent to me by a locals board member, VivaBarnesLaw.locals.com, the killing of Osama bin Laden that exposes how much the CIA version, the Washington Post version, the cinematic version, a Zero Dark Thirty version is almost entirely fiction. And if you know the national security space, if you know, like, I mean, John Le Carre with Russia House and Taylor of Panama and all the other books, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, or uh, Graham Greene, our man in Havana, or any of those people, then you knew the script of Russiagate before it even started. You knew who the, what the Steele dossier would be like. You knew who Christopher Steele was. You knew who how they laundered bogus information and basically made up, you know, took uh, their local bar. I mean, literally, that's how it happened. Some guy he talked to at a bar in D.C. becomes his secret inside source right next to Putin. And what's amazing is The Guardian is back to doing it again. They're, they're yeah. rehashing it. The media is anxious to repeat the same lies. They got caught telling for years. How was it that you could identify from the get-go how and why this was likely a fake story and how that the methodology of that fake story worked? How did background in national security allow you to smoke that out very early? Yeah, so when you, when you learn about the history of misinformation, disinformation, um, you do learn about the reality that not just foreign intelligence agencies use this to peddle information, but domestic intelligence agencies too. And I would have to say in the early Trump years, I was somewhat, I wasn't fully embracing the idea that they were just totally lying, but I was very skeptical about the Trump-Russia narrative. Um, I don't think, I think that our intelligence community used to not want to engage in this type of behavior on a regular basis, especially when it involved domestic politics. Um, there were some kind of lessons learned from the Nixon era that I think they calmed down a little bit for a while. But when Donald Trump won the election, everything came back. Um, you know, these FISA guardrails just no longer existed, the spying on people the leaking information to the Washington Post and New York Times, um, the, the infamous transcripts from the Fit Flynn call that ended up being nothing significant, that it was just, it, at some point it became clear to any anyone that understood uh, the, the past of these organizations and, and what they were trying to pull off, that this was basically, um, yeah, again, this is a sensitive topic for YouTube, but they, 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 they wanted to impact the government in a significant manner to the point where Donald Trump's standing would always be questioned. And that's what they wanted. And in addition to him, his standing as his legitimacy being questioned, um, they eventually wanted him to be removed from office. And he came very close, especially in those early days. Uh, I think that... Um, Mike Pence very much bought into the, the nonsense that was being peddled by the intelligence community and people that were very close to the president that would have overseen um, a type of situation where the president would have had to step down based on nonsense. But luckily we had some awesome 
um, intrepid reporters and also some politicians who really stepped up on this. You know, you had uh, Devin Nunes and uh, you know, Jim Jordan, Rand Paul, uh, a lot of a lot of people that that took the fight back to these people. And uh, I, I think that President Trump only survives with, with, with allies that were necessary at the time. Who um, who ended up breaking the Kleinsmith uh, FISA falsification? I, I forget how that came about. I think it was Inspector General Horowitz that ultimately ratted Kleinsmith out. Not that it led to any consequence, but going back to the sources. So if you understand how they launder information, how they use anonymous sourcing basically to tell my story and in, in, with what the intelligence agencies want. And these kids at the New York Times and the Washington Post saying, oh, I have a special source at the CIA. Not reasonably like your Glenn Greenwalds of the world gag at hearing that. They're like, that's yeah. your source. That's exactly who you should not be listening to. And I think, I mean, I had a debate with Ben Bradley when he was editor of the Washington Post many years ago uh, about before it was outed who Deep Throat was. And I raised the question with him. I said, maybe the reason you guys have kept secret who Deep Throat is it's because it's not some moral, uh, grand, just whistleblower. It's some corrupt intelligence officer or FBI Hoover guy who wanted to weaponize their power against and form a de facto coup for the then kind of loose deep state that was mad at Nixon for a range of reasons. And I just remember he smiled and laughed, said, well, well I guess you'll find out someday. Well, of course, that's exactly who it turned out to be. The guy who ran COINTELPRO, Mark Felt, was throat he wasn't this honest honorable moral champion bob woodward was used as the tool of the deep state to take out an elected president that was the real story that was the moral heroic story of bob woodward uh you know now busy doing his little cocktail parties and whatnot uh but the i like the importance of understanding how they're you don't trust any story from the institutional press that has well-connected anonymous sources the, the IC, the intelligence community, deep state, um, however you want to identify them, are very good at targeting specific media entities and individuals in the media and turning them basically into rock stars and delivering them everything that they ever wanted on a silver platter, making their job easy for them and using them to launder um, information uh, their campaigns through these people. I mean, Adam Goldman won a, uh, I think he won a Pulitzer uh, for, for his reporting on Trump Russia and a lot of people in New York Times and it was all nonsense, but they elevated these people from like kind of like a low level person to a star that wins the awards that they ever wanted. Uh, what's her name? Uh, Natasha Bertrand, who's like infamously called Fusion Natasha now. She was like a nobody at some random paper and made a contact, I think, in the CIA. And this contact was just feeding stuff to her. And it wasn't just a contact. Like, this was a concerted effort through these intelligence agencies to identify these people, to feed information to them, to see that they can be trusted to keep them anonymous. Uh, this is what James Comey did. Uh, this is what Clapper did that they found individuals, you know, like Ken Delanian, I'm just like name dropping all over the place here, but uh, but they found individuals that they that, that were trustworthy, that were willing to launder information for them. And it helped both sides. These people have never been prosecuted for anything that they did for all the illegal behavior. And the you know, so-called journalists kept them 
safe, keep them, kept them anonymous. Um, Jordan, the question I have for you, I mean, you're doing stuff which is independent journalism without the pressures of mainstream journalism. You get to step on the toes, I guess, of some of the mainstream journalists. You get to make them look bad or make them look unthorough. Have, how is it making enemies with these people? Have you made enemies with the mainstream journalists? I, I see you on Twitter. You're sort of snarkier than, or I think everything reads snarkier on Twitter than it otherwise is intended. But I was not expecting a, a soft demeanor from you uh, based on Twitter. But have you made enemies or are you still friends with the people who work in the milieu in the mainstream section of it? Yeah, I try to be as diplomatic as possible in person. And I don't I don't pick fights with people on social media. <laughs> if people attack me, I'll be like, OK, you know, I'll, I'll I'm happy to engage in this. And, and you're probably not going to end up on top here. But uh, yeah, that, that's kind of my philosophy is a, you know, similar to actually Donald Trump, who who famously branded a, a counterpuncher that I, I think that it, it's not worth engaging with these people. If they want to engage in, with you and try to smear you, then you have every right to fight back and even go as far as to go after them a, a, as well. But, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend anyone getting into the, to the space just to deliberately like attack these people because it, it's just a waste of time. And these are actually, I think these are dying institutions they're they're funded um, through the welfare of people like Jeff Bezos. These institutions don't make money, and they they put you know million dollar losses on these people's balance sheets. So while they fade into obscurity, I will I will cheer that on. If they decide to like you know engage with us or attack us, so I'm happy to accelerate that process. But I'm looking forward to the the collapse of the corporate press, and and if that means that these people uh, end up without a job. Um, I, I wish them, I wish them luck, uh, with, uh, maybe they can learn to code or, or, or you know, build solar panels as Joe Biden said. I, I hope that they find success in these very important things, uh, out, outside of journalism. Learn to code might get us kicked off of YouTube. Robert, <laughs> I, I'm, you're, you're taking flag. Barnes, why have you not put Viva on to Jesse Lee Peterson yet? Why are you hiding JLP from Viva? Okay. I'm going to look into Jesse Lee Peterson right now. There's just, there is... There's not enough time in the day, people. So it's there's. I'll look into it now. It's come up, and I've got some explanations, and apparently, someone I have to follow. Um, he's uh, it's got a great name. Uh, you know the, uh, uh, yeah, you know, sort of uh, he, Colinor. There's some other people that we actually haven't uh, invited. People don't know that uh, there's a bunch of people that have been uh, invited. It's just figuring out timing and scheduling uh, over time. So the uh, not trying to hire, uh, you know, nobody named Jesse Lee. Will I try to hide from uh, the, the court of public opinion? <laughs> the uh, too good of a, a a name in that respect. But speaking of like the conservative sort of uh, uh, webosphere and media sphere, were you surprised by how many people, especially early on, some have come around late, but even like you know Benji Shapiro and some other people. I know his wife's a doctor, but you know we're kind of on the wrong side of a lot of pandemic issues early. Did it surprise you how many people had sort of deferred to the white lab coat crowd, sort of were cheering on Fauci no matter what he was saying on a given day, at least in the first early months, cheering on the lock even, which was frightening to me. Were you surprised at how much of the conservative people on the right uh, did not default to freedom when the question was raised? I think you saw this a lot with the DC crowd and I don't want to name names, but I think it goes to show that a lot of people don't actually believe in what they're selling you because if they did, they never would have stood for these lockdowns for these other things that um, 
destroyed so many millions of American human lives and livelihoods that there are certain things that you need to stand for, even if we're being attacked by a, you know, a, a rogue nation or if something horrible is going on. There are some things that just are, are beyond the pale for, for supporting and the government's interference into our basic um, individual rights is one of those things that you should never, ever, there's no reason to ever support them, even in, you know, a, a horrible pandemic, because it's still up to us as individuals to, 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 to fight that battle on our own. And when the government gets involved, it can only do bad things on this front. And, and yeah, it was, it was very disappointing to see, but it was very revealing. And I, I, I'm sure you guys have also, um, you know, made some interesting connections and, and good friends because you found that like a lot of people share your ideals and were willing to stand for them in, in, in a tough time when not a lot of people were willing to um, back you. Like I remember that a lot of people on the right were like calling me all these awful names. Like there was this one guy who was basically this very high profile social media commentator who said that like I was basically a terrorist for arguing against masks because I was I was supporting the spread of a virus like it was like I was a bioterrorist and there were a lot of people that I have um, unfortunately haven't um, talked with since like the beginning of this stuff because like you you sometimes just lose all respect for them when they're just like bedwetters to such a dramatic extent and, and you realize that like they don't really believe in anything that they're selling and the DC beltway Beltway class, the, the real epidemic was all the supposed advocates for liberty living inside Washington, D.C., folding like a lawn chair because of the threat of a virus. It, it is. Um, it's an amazing thing. I've never been anti-mask. I've just been anti-government requiring it or mandating it simply to impose massive fines on a, on a, on a bureaucratic level because we know that once the masks got legally mandated, and I say legally mandated in quotes because it never went through any legislative process, the cops were just going around looking for people who were easy to ticket, who looked like people that would not be likely to contest the tickets. And it was nothing more than a money grab and had nothing to do with actual safety, especially when they're you know, issuing tickets in parks, outdoors in parks, knowing the science. And so it was never a question of like being anti the protection measures. It's just being anti-government enforcing them with draconian um, penalties and you would have gotten probably the same level of compliance, if not more, but for the coercion aspect, which goes towards the masks, it goes towards the vaccines, it goes towards anything where if you, when you can't be swayed with reason, you're not going to be compelled with coercion without some pushback and probably more of it. But yeah, like losing some friends, when people don't, um, I just found there's a lot more people who are, uh, I'll, I'll back it up. There's the expression, success has many fathers, failure is an orphan. Uh, Nobody wants to be responsible for the consequences of their actions or very few people, the ones who are likely to defer to the government. And those people have become, you know, plain as day for everyone to see now as a result of this. And the DC Beltway is a pretty good example, if I can imagine. It's that people who ultimately defer to the authority of the government and don't want to take responsibility for their own independence. And I can see how those are the easiest ones to, to, to turn and defer. But uh, I, I guess we've all lost some friends as a result of our public defiance of total submission. <laughs> but it, uh, speaking of that sort of broader, of course, 
If you're in Canada, you might be buying stuff from China that might have contamination in the mask, and that's a whole other animal. The uh, the uh, to to distrust what uh, sort of took place and transpired. But I think you know the questioning of the methods, the lack of legislative process, the lack of investigative process, the lack of full transparency, the lack of public participation, the 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 lack of an evidentiary trial, adjudicated process, all of the the deaths are as contaminated as the um, in terms public policy, but a big part of that was a lot of institutional deference institutional actors, especially in, on both the left and the right. But that's a good transition into some of the issues currently uh, raging on a national security front in Cuba. If we look at Cuba, it's fascinating that our left decided hollow by the statism, welcome statism that came with these public health interventions and lockdowns. In a few countries that could not afford that, were countries like South Africa. They're already right on the edge economically. And another one was Cuba. And what's fascinating to me is you have these public, uh, the the, the first people willing to many years in a Cuban prison just to go out on the street and publicly protest and and broadcast it. And the reaction still of some parts of the left Crystal, Kyle Kalinske, the same people that Joe Rogan tells you to listen to, which God bless him, they're sign that the man has way too much weed. The is, uh, but you have Crystal Ball and Kyle Kalinske saying that reason, Jim, God bless him, the the reason uh, is that uh, it's because of the embargo. Not recognizing Cuba chose not to get any vaccine because it wanted to make its own. Uh, Cuba has a, an um, of its own until the protest. Venting people from anywhere in the world, bringing in food or bringing in medicine. Uh, and again, I'm not someone that's a hard right guy. I'm not a Ben Shapiro on Cuba, uh, but I let's just say I know people who have been there for many times years, and people right now on the ground there. That uh, resistance is an authentic resistance to the effect of the lockdown. They didn't, you know, the system is not popular in the country. That's why they don't have elections there, particularly with younger generations. But they could afford to do the lockdown. It was going to kill the legitimate government. They thought, the left thought it would uh, justify this total stroll. Look at how we saved all your lives, when what it did is it ruined everybody, and now we're seeing protests for it. But what's amazing is the inability of sort of at least part of the press, particularly on the left, to be honest about the lockdown's consequences and instead are still pretending it's 1961 Bay of Pigs, Cuba. Yeah, Cuba's... um... It, the uh, in Florida, it's a very interesting situation because we have a huge Cuban American population in Southeast Florida, and they're so, to their credit, they're so passionate about the liberty for their, um, you know, their their co-national uh, folks um, for Cuba, and I, I think the left gets this wrong, and a significant faction on the right gets this wrong because speaking of the embargo. Uh, the United States has had the embargo on Cuba since the Communist Party took over, and we really have nothing to show for success from the United States side and in influencing the affairs in Cuba, because that's the goal. You know, you want to make them somewhat like less threatening, but they still have all these ties to China and Russia, and they're a problem. Um, so I think that an argument could be made from the right that the embargo is not useful maybe drop the embargo. I'm not saying it should be a priority. The left's problem is that they think that the embargo is responsible for the economic issues in Cuba. 
but that's not the case. It might make it a little more difficult for um, for trade in some circumstances. But as you noted, it is communism that it is causing the government in Cuba to be a total disaster and its citizens to suffer. If, if Cuba was a free market that was embargoed by the United States, they would still find out a way for their citizens to be prosperous. They have a lot of trading partners still. Um, the, the idea that if you know these people like AOC and uh, I think Black Lives Matter, the organization was saying, oh, we can just lift the embargo because they're proponents of these hard left ideas and socialism and communism and think that they Cuba will all of a sudden flourish if we lift the embargo. And, and that's just, it, it's clearly not the case. And it, I, I just hope that one day, um, all, there's so many Cuban Americans uh, in, in this area specifically and all over the country who have incredible stories. Uh, you know, their family basically all, the, the, the dissidents all came here on, on rafts or devices that they, uh, made themselves and went through tough times to get here. And, and I, I have nothing for support for that movement. I don't think that the U S has any interest in a military option for Cuba. I think that would be a disaster, but um, in terms of hoping that that regime eventually falls someday, uh, you know, I, I fully support the, you know, Cuban American and Cuban people's ambitions to be free. And I think you can support any, anyone's, I hope that everyone has the opportunity to have, full individual rights someday. Um, but it, especially from a policy option, there is no, I think there's nothing on the table from the US side. Uh, I, I really do not want to see the military involved in the Cuba situation whatsoever. I'm, I'm no, reading that, 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 time. that government's really close to collapsing on its own accord yeah. because it failed to deliver basic things by mm -hmm. its own choices. So the, but it's speaking of which, what's fascinating to me is to bridge back to the earlier conversation it was that experience by Cubans, that experience by Venezuelans in Florida that led them to when they saw people like Pitbull, when they saw the lockdowns to be like, this kind of looks familiar and not in a good way. Uh, and the, to be quickly on top of this, one of the reasons why Trump went up there, one of the reasons why DeSantis has such political protection and popularity, because the, the press, people forget the press waged war on DeSantis, predicting he was going to be a mass murderer every other week because he wasn't going along with the institutional narrative and Florida ended up being one of the most desirable places for people to escape to. Um, what, in, in how have you seen it in Florida in terms of the public's reaction to DeSantis's independence? And how much do you see a different mindset in a, with people who are living in a free state, a free state of Florida compared to the mindset of the people you saw in DC? If you talk to the business owners here, they are so thankful that Ron DeSantis literally like saved their their careers, their 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 families' uh, livelihoods. Um, I think that Ron DeSantis will win the next election in in a, in a landslide. Uh, the the Democrat um, opposition in Florida right now is like a total joke. I mean, there is a significant amount of Democratic voters. He only won the last gubernatorial election by. I think maybe like uh, low five figures uh, votes in, in, a, in a state of significant 20 million people. But um, yeah, so he, he, he is uh, adored, uh, especially by the Republicans in Florida. And I think that rightfully a lot of people are hearing whispers about him, you know, stepping up to the big show, but in such a divided country, like as a, you know, a Floridian right now, 
I would almost rather just like, you know, let's send Trump out there and keep DeSantis here because what we got going on here is good. And let's just like keep the federal government out of our affairs. Uh, it would suck to lose DeSantis because there's doesn't seem to be much of a bench and you never know what you get with these politicians. I want to read, I well, pulled up a couple of chats. Oh, sorry. Well, Robert, uh, Go ahead, Robert. I'll, I'll oh, yeah, I was just going to say, what do you think about all this? Like someone just mentioned, the, these people are going to go door to door. Now, I'll be honest. I would pay money to see some government people from D.C. go door to door in the state of Alabama. Yeah, If they <laughs> would film that for like a reality TV, that would be a beautiful thing. They'd knock on the door and say, I got a little jab for you. Good luck. I mean, you'd see some people running from some dogs, from some guns, some other things. That would be pure entertainment. But what do you think? I mean, are they really going to go door? I mean, this is, again, historically unprecedented. We've never done anything like this. Send people door to door to stick a needle in your arm of so uh, of of anything, regardless of what it was. Now we grab some people for forced sterilizations, but we should be ashamed of that. We grab people for the Tuskegee experiments where we didn't did not give them medicine. We should be ashamed of that. We detained people during the Japanese detention camps, Korematsu. We should be ashamed of that. Of course, Canada they came up with another name for it. It's not a detention camp. It's a hotel for tourists. A government-designated quarantine facility or a government-designated hotel, GDH. So beautiful. It's Orwellian. Yeah. But the, the, how do you think people are going to respond to this? It, it, it's interesting because the, the latest data on the vaccines, um, Israel's a really interesting country that's releasing data because they um, basically – compelled everyone to get vaccinated, a significant portion of the population got vaccinated. What they're finding out of Israel now is that the vaccine, while Big Pharma claimed some stuff about the vaccine at preventing infection, um, we can just say that it hasn't lived up to the hype of, of this specific prevention tactic. So the argument for forcing people to do this no longer applies because it doesn't seem, according to the latest data from all these countries among the vaccinated, that prevention of transmission is not really a thing related to this vaccine. The, the argument now is it prevents severe disease, but not that it prevents transmission. So if someone, an individual chooses not to get vaccinated, it's kind of like, you know, do what you, it's, it's on your own accord, right? Like just as if someone chooses to, um, partake in any other habit that might cost them or benefit them in the future. Yeah. That's the stat that everyone is running with now. Um, it's a celebrity who I was talking to on Twitter, but she was, Oh, uh, Sarah Silverman says, you know, 99% of the people hospitalized have not received both, um, both shots. Uh, and then she, yeah, that was a case. Fauci claim. It originated with Fauci and it, it's a total, it's a total fabrication. It, it's totally not true. It's so far off by by orders of magnitude. It's it, it's 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 false on its well, face. Well, so and that's what I was saying. It's like now there's there's varying numbers. I've seen ninety nine percent. I've seen ninety five percent. I've heard out of England sixty percent. This is the problem. Once you are dealing with a media that is fundamentally untrustworthy, proven untrustworthy, historically demonstrably untrustworthy. Where does anyone go? You got to go to the people who are reading what what Robert refers to at the white papers, and you got to. And, and they're the ones that get demonized by the mainstream media that has the monopoly over people's reputations and, and, and brands. Um, well, Robert, you see you're that when they're attacking Alex Berenson, a longtime New York Times journalist who's only citing government data, Bobby Kennedy, who's only citing government data, 
Brett Weinstein? Brett Weinstein, a liberal uh, science guy who's just talking to other science people? Suddenly, you can't listen to what Brett has to say? I mean, this is insanity uh, in terms of the mindset of who, all of a sudden, the only people you can listen to are the, you know, are the slower brother of the white lab coat crowd. You know, the, the, the people who don't understand what special meant in their special education program. The, uh, they got the misunderstanding of that. But speaking of which, uh, somebody sidewalk asked from our locals board at vivabarnslaw.locals.com. Uh, what is Jordan hopeful about? Um, yes. Yeah, so I see a lot of opportunity here because we lived through this awful experiment um, devised by our government and forced upon us. And it has, you can call it uh, red pills. People, people have become more based than ever. Our, our coalition of based individuals is now millions and millions of people. People have awakened to the reality that the corporate press is just a bunch of uh, you know, thieves and liars, that, that big pharma has, has lied to us repeatedly, that, that our government bureaucrats are not to be trusted. And this institutional distrust will be very healthy when it comes to the future of our nation because people will no longer give the benefit of the doubt to these people and will scrutinize much more than they used to. We, uh, especially as Americans, I think at least people who have accepted that, you know, this, this safety regime was an awful thing, will fight very hard to not allow something like that to happen in the future, hopefully. Well, an example of that, sorry, go ahead, B. Oh, no, I was good. What I find amazing now is you, you talk about the distrust in government, and I see that playing in, and I want to get back to the Gretchen Whitmer thing, but I very much see that playing into the next level of being red-pilled is where you have the institutionalized powers now. Call it infiltrating, calling it, call it setting up. They want to demonize everyone who is now vocally anti-government to basically turn them into domestic-ists. And, uh, and I, see, I see this happening in real time from the outside. Um, and I, I find that as encouraging as you find the red-pill aspect. The double red pill is seeing how these people are now being demonized and worst in order to turn them into criminals before they actually are criminals. And if they don't ever become criminals, have the FBI come in and, 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 and facilitate the process, so to speak. Sorry, Robert, what were you going to say? Oh, yeah. I was gonna say, uh, one of the questions on locals is effectively uh, what the to what degree were you concerned that once you launched on this, like I was explaining earlier, I was having a debate with my uh, my older sister who's very smart. She won like 34 out of 35 awards in law school. Number one, my brother and I just finally figured out we would stand up the whole time because they were just going to say her name every, every single award. Uh, but you know, she's a, she trusts more in the white lab coat crowd than I do. Uh, and one of the things I'm encouraged by is that, you know, people forget the Milgram experiment when they put two, I mean, people don't know they brought people in. There's a guy in a white lab coat. They said, Hey, we're doing this thing where we're we're disciplining people who get the answers wrong with electric shock treatment. We'll tell you what to dial it up to based on their answers. The person sits there, and the scary thing was more than half of people would keep turning it up, thinking the person in the other room was dying just because someone in a white lab coat told them to. However, when they had two different people in a white lab coat disagree with each other, 90% of the people wouldn't go along with torturing anybody. And what it, it, the potential is that people wake up to not trusting the white lab coat crowd, rely upon their own conscience, and people make much better decisions. And you're right. I mean, like questioning big pharma in certain contexts, there were 2 to 3%. You know, Bobby Kennedy was out on an island. 
There were, you know, Alex Jones was out on an island. There was two or three percent people saying maybe we shouldn't always trust whatever big pharma tells us. Maybe this drug is great. Maybe it's not great. Maybe we should have informed consent, like the Nuremberg Code of 1947 said. But when you entered into this, there were a lot of people whose fear, like for a doctor, there's no incentive, no skin in the game for a doctor to warn about the vaccine. Because if the doctor tells someone not to take the vaccine and they suffer injury, the doctor can get sued into oblivion. If, on the other hand, the doctor tells them, uh, absolutely, you have to take this and something causes that and that vaccine causes them harm, doctor can't be sued at all. Uh, and so the incentives are so distorted. And the same with the people in the medical community. Look at Brett Weinstein. That's why they're blackballing him. We discussed it early on. Those two doctors that came out in California that ran those emergency clinics. We got into a debate with uh, uh, my friend Scott Adams about that, the, where they were like, look, there's a, not a lot of literature based on what, what's happening here. Not It's not our lived experience. Were you concerned at all that, OK, if I go into this space and say what I really think, there's a bunch of people that are never going to look at me to be retained in the future, et cetera. Were you worried about that at all? What said, I'm just going to follow where I think the truth is, uh, not worry about the consequences. I suppose I'm just uniquely immune from caring about what other people think. So I, I was born to thrive for a, a time like this. Uh, well, I care about what people who I care about think about what I'm doing, but like randos on the internet. No, not, not, nothing whatsoever as long as um people who in my inner circle who i trust and who i've like talked about this stuff with it's like yeah this seems legitimate um I, I have no concern with going against the green and um robert you especially you know you were right there too <laughs> dealing with this stuff when um we were in the not in the one percent but in like the 0.01 percent of people who were talking about this stuff so I think some of us are just uniquely different in that we just like, if you're just like a random person on the internet that wants to call me the worst things in the world, I, I just don't care. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to have that uh, attribute, I guess. All right. Now, with that said, we got, uh, we'll keep it under two hours. It makes it very easy for Eric Hunley, who transposes all of these streams into podcasts. It makes it easier for whatever the reason, under two hours, easy to convert over two hours, a little more headachey. Um, Jordan, tell everybody watching where they can find you on the various social medias. Yeah, so twitter.com slash Jordan Schachtel. Um, my publication is called The Dossier. It's on Substack, dossier.substack.com. You can also find, I, I have a new podcast that I just launched last week, also called The Dossier. It's, it's available on Apple, on Spotify. It's also available to subscribers on my Substack. And um, yeah, you know, I, I really appreciate you guys having me on and uh, had a, a very interesting conversation. All right. Absolutely. Our pleasure. And apparently someone said way early on that Schachtel in German means box. I don't know if that's true. I'm going to go to Google after this. Robert, you have to and I'll be at the after party at Viva Bo live chat at vivabarneslaw.locals.com while watching News with Booze, which is on Eric Hunley and Allison Morrow's channel coming up in just a bit. And now I said I would do a live stream on Locals exclusive today. I'll join the chat. I'll do the live stream tomorrow because I'm out of time and I've got three kids upstairs who have been surprisingly quiet. Uh, there was one other thing. Robert F. Kennedy for everybody. Did I mention it tonight? We we had to postpone to August 11th. Robert, who do we have on the fourth? Uh, next week will be Richard Barris. Uh, and then we yeah. got a lineup all the way through uh, mid-September. So the uh, we'll be announcing those in the near future.
All right. So everyone in the chat, thank you very much. Jordan, Robert, thank you very much. Stick around. We'll say our proper goodbyes afterwards. Everyone else, have a good 